All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And let's take a moment and let's call upon the name of the Lord again. And let's ask for God's help during this time that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says to us in His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we come again today and we take our stand, Lord, in your presence in the name of Jesus. Lord, we come in his name. We come on the basis of his finished work. And Lord, we come to you, the living God. And we thank you for your promises, Lord, that you've made to us. Even in this moment, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who walks among the lampstands of your church. Lord, you walk in the midst of your people. And Lord, we pray today that you would manifest your power to sanctify, Lord. That you would bear witness to your word. That you would cause your word to do what you sent it out to do in our lives and in this church. Lord, we pray that you would build up the saints today. And that you would save the lost today. Lord, we pray for those who have sought you in this room that, that, that you would be found by them this morning. And Lord, we pray for those in our midst today that haven't sought you. That even in a surprising way, in an unexpected way, you would demonstrate your power to grab a human soul. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture says, Hebrews 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for man to die one time, and after that comes the judgment. The Bible teaches that every single one of us have a date with deity. There will be a moment where we will stand before our maker. And that's what we're going to talk about together this morning. Friends, there is coming a day when the Lord God will put the final period on the final sentence, on the final paragraph, on the final page of the final chapter of human history. And in that moment, time as we know it will come to a climactic conclusion and every single one of us will enter into eternity. And I want us to listen closely this morning to what the Lord Jesus says about this final day. So let's turn to Matthew 25, and we'll begin reading God's Word in verse 31, and we'll go to the end of the chapter this morning. These are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with Him... Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it not, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we have a very sober text this morning from the lips of Jesus. And as we work our way through this passage, I want us to pay special attention to the one whom Jesus says will sit on the throne, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And so let's begin in verse 31 and focus in on this one phrase together. Jesus prophesies that there's coming a day when the Son of Man will come in glory. And that's the phrase I want to highlight for just a few minutes, that he's coming on this final day in glory. And so I want you to consider that for a moment this morning. There's coming a day when this world is going to see a great reversal of the things that they think are true about Jesus Christ. You see, the world has very little problem with a merely human Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth who's a holy man who taught some good things that you can definitely apply to your life. But all this business about the incarnate Son of God, that you should fall down and worship Him and serve Him with your whole life, the world has no place for this Jesus. And part of the, part of the disconnect is that when Jesus came the first time in His first coming, there was a veil over the glory and the deity of Christ. He, his first coming was, was in the form of a servant. There was a, there was a veil over the glory of Christ. And you see this disconnect, even as Jesus was crucified, you see 
those who mocked him while he hung on the cross, they mocked him with these words. If you are really the son of God, what did they say? Come down from the cross. If you're really who you say you are, Lord Jesus, why this weakness? Why this suffering? Are you not more powerful than the Romans who have crucified you? If you're really Jesus, the Son of God, come down from the cross and deal with your enemies. There's a veil over his power and over his glory. Isaiah the prophet tells us that that veiling is part of the plan of God. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, in that song of the suffering servant, Isaiah says this about the Lord Jesus. There was no form or majesty that we should behold him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. Now that's very interesting. Because that verse means that if you would have saw the Lord Jesus face to face on the roads of Nazareth, that what would, what would have appeared before you would have seemed like an ordinary mere man. In other words, in his first coming, there's nothing outwardly in the appearance of Jesus that would tip you off that the one standing in front of you is not a mere man. He's actually the Son of God in human flesh. And so think about it. There's no lightning bolt shooting out of his eyes. There's no thunder rolling out of his mouth. He just seems like the carpenter from Nazareth. Why? Because there's a veil over his glory and over his deity in his first coming. And listen, friends, it's only saving faith in Jesus that sees through that veil and sees, no, no, he's more than a mere man. That's my Savior. That's the Son of God. So we have a, a, a veiling of the glory of Jesus in his first coming. And what we need to understand is that's part of the plan. That was part of the plan. It wasn't the will of God that Jesus in his first coming ripped the sky wide open and all the warrior angels come with him to judge all of his enemies. That wasn't the plan of God. You know why? Because every single one of us would be counted as his enemies. In other words, why the first coming in weakness and why the second coming in power? It's because of the patience of God, the mercy of God, that Christ would come. That blood would be shed for the atonement, the atonement price for our sins. That the forgiveness of sins would be secured. That the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth. That sinners would be given time to repent and to trust in Christ. It wasn't the plan of God that Jesus come the first time in glory. In fact, it was the plan of God that Jesus come the first time in weakness. And, and it wasn't really even weakness. It just appeared to be weakness. In other words, as Jesus hangs on the cross and gives up his life, you're actually not seeing a weak man overpowered by his enemies, what you're actually seeing is the power of God on display to save his people from their sins. And that's who Jesus is, and that's why he came in his first coming. He came as a savior. He came to save his people from their sins. But what I want you to understand this morning 
is there is coming a day when every eye will see a very different picture of Jesus Christ. Friends, you need to learn this. You need to know this well. He's not coming again in weakness. He says in this text that the Son of Man is coming on the final day. Listen, in glory, in glory Jesus will come. What does that mean? After Jesus was resurrected, after he conquered death, after he was raised from the dead, the Bible says that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in that moment, the Bible teaches that Jesus entered into his glory. He entered into a glorified state. No longer in that humble form of a servant. Jesus is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. And this passage assures us that there's coming a day where that glory that Jesus has right now, that he prayed in John 17 that the Father would restore that glory that he had with the Father from the foundation of the earth. There's coming a day when that glory will be manifested visibly to every human eye. This passage teaches that every human being will one day see the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. A very different Jesus than the Jesus that many envision. Revelation 1 describes Christ in glory with these holy terrifying descriptions and I want to read just a few of them who is Jesus the real Jesus Revelation chapter 1 describes him as having hair that is white like wool John says that his eyes were a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze his voice was like the sound of many waters And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Think about that. You might have a few quarters in your pocket. Jesus holds stars in his hand. John goes on to say, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's the glorified Christ. And And then he says this, his face was like the sun shining And it's full strength. What will it be like to stand before Jesus on the final day? It'll be like going outside in the middle of the day and looking at the sun that shines bright enough to burn your eyeballs out. The son of man's face will shine like the sun shining in full strength. And it's so important for you to know this, that the one that you're going to stand before on the final day is not the version of Jesus on the History Channel. It's not the version of Jesus that you've grown up hearing you know, everybody talk about. It's the biblical Jesus. It's the Jesus that is presented to us in the Word of God. You will stand before the glorified Christ. And listen, why is that so important? Well, think about it like this. Perhaps the final judgment would not be so serious if this were not the case, if this were not the one that we stood before and gave an account of our lives to. In other words, if the judge that we stand before on the final day is not 
the glorified Christ, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, if he didn't have total knowledge of your entire life, including every sin that you have ever committed, you might be tempted to confidently strut to that judgment with a higher view of yourself than you ought to have. But once you realize, no, the one whom you stand before that day has eyes like a flame of fire. It's not just that he sees you, it's, it's that he sees through you. And so think about it, friend. Those evasive maneuvers that we employ as soon as we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he sees right through you on that day. Right through all of your excuses, right through... You know, all, all, all the little ways that you try to explain away your life, you stand before the Holy One with the eyes like a flame of fire. And if the judge didn't have all power to judge you, if he wasn't the glorified Lord Jesus, it would be less intimidating to stand before him. If you were standing before your equal. But on this day, as we're going to see in a moment, it's, it's impossible to describe how outmatched you will be in power and authority. You will stand before the one with all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And if he weren't perfectly holy and righteous, it just might be possible to strike a bargain with him at that judgment seat. But the one whom we will stand before is the Holy One of Israel, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 gives us another picture of the, of the Apostle John. It zones in on this same moment where the nations are gathered for judgment before Jesus. Revelation 20 verse 11 tells us that John sees the judgment throne. He says, and I saw the great white throne. And then he says this phrase, and the one who was seated upon it. John saw Jesus seated in judgment upon his judgment throne. And I want you to pay careful attention to what he says next. And he says that in that moment, the earth and the sky began to flee from him, from the one seated on the throne. It's impossible to describe this moment, but I want you to imagine yourself for just a moment of the trauma of standing in the presence of one from whom the sky peels back and runs from. Jesus seated on his throne in glory and John says the elements of creation begin to become undone in the presence of Jesus. Sky flees away. Earth begins to flee from the one who is seated on the throne. And then imagine it setting in of knowing that there's nowhere that you can run to evade him. Earth might flee. Sky might flee, but you can't. You must stand before Christ. Verse 31 tells us that the angels will come with Jesus on the final day. He's going to come in glory with the angels. And so heaven is going to be emptied 
for this holy moment where Jesus sits upon his judgment throne. And notice next in verse 32, he says that all the nations are gathered before him. All the nations are gathered before him. Now notice this, nations are gathered, but individuals are judged. Okay, Nations are gathered, individuals are judged. Jesus is not teaching that nation, there's going to be some corporate judgment. Pakistan's going to be judged, America's going to be judged, Russia's going to be judged. That's not what he's teaching. Individuals are sheep and goats in this passage. Okay? Nations gathered is just a, a way, uh, a biblical way of describing everybody that has ever existed is here. The nations are gathered before the Lord Jesus. Think about this. This will be the largest gathering of human beings that has ever existed and will ever exist. Every son and daughter of Adam will be there. Standing before Christ, no one absent, and in our post-COVID world, no one virtually attending this meeting. Every soul standing before the Maker, face to face with Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this about yourself, you're going to be there. You will see Him. You will see the one from whom the sky will flee away from. You will see him. And every soul's eternal destiny will hang upon the words that come out of this king, this judge's mouth. No appeal, no higher court, no democracy, no taking counsel with a few other people. You will deal singularly with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be your judge. After the masses are gathered in verse 32, we are told that there will be a great separation in this mass of humanity. All of humanity will be separated into two groups. Jesus says the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, we have been instructed about these two groups all throughout the Bible. The Bible simplifies things. It gets down to the, 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 the brass tacks, the, 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 the very foundation. And at the end of the day, there's two kinds of people in the world. The righteous and the wicked. Our proverb says the wise and the fool. Our Jesus says here the sheep and the goats. These are the saved and the lost. Two kinds of people in God's creation. And for all of human history, think about it, these two groups have intermingled in this world. Lived in the same neighborhoods, go to the same grocery stores, drive on the same roads, work in the same buildings. But Jesus is telling us that there's coming a moment where they're forever separated from one another. Sheep on the right, Goats on the left, and there's a great chasm that is placed between those two groups. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus has already taught us in Matthew 13, where he, he teaches the parable of the wheat and the weeds. 
And the disciples asked that question, can we just go ahead and rip the weeds out of the world now? And Jesus says, no, that harvest is for the final day. Jesus says, the weed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the devil. And then he says this, the angels are the reapers. And the final day is the harvest. That's why the angels are here. They're the ones who's going to execute the verdict of the judge. They're the ones who are going to enforce this separation between the weeds and the wheat, the sheep and the goats. And so the king is seated. And you have these two groups that are separated from one another. And now they hear two separate verdicts from King Jesus. The sheep first, in verse 34 The sheep will hear the most glorious words that could ever be heard by human ears. Listen to it again, verse 34. Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. With those words, the righteous, the sheep, will enter into the kingdom. They'll enter into eternal life. They will enter into never-fading, indestructible joy in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. And I want you to imagine the joy on that day of seeing the one on the throne, the one from whom the sky is fleeing away from him, and knowing that that glorious Son of God bore my sins in His body on the tree. The joy of knowing that in spite all of my sins, there's no more judgment for me because He bore it all. He's my Savior. Because Jesus drank my cup of wrath down to the very dregs and there's no more judgment for me because he took it all. Imagine in that moment that contrast of knowing that how how could one so high and holy stoop so low to save a sinner like me? And it will be indescribable joy because that is the gospel. That's exactly who Jesus is and that's exactly what Jesus has done. Friends, imagine the joy of knowing that you deserve nothing but hell, but on that day you receive nothing but grace. Glorious, indescribable, never-ending, free grace from Jesus Christ. What could possibly compare to that in this world of hearing Jesus invite you into the kingdom with those words, Come, you sons and daughters, Come, you children of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Everything is ready. Come, inherit the kingdom. The grace of that moment, the joy of that moment, is why the Bible tells us in Revelation that the song of heaven is not, man, I'm awesome, I deserve to be here. But the song of heaven is worthy as the lamb who was slain. For he ransomed from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. 
the saints in heaven know that their only grounds for entrance into that kingdom is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so they sing it forever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lord Jesus. Praise to His name. And so the sheep hear the blessing from Christ. And yet the goats, in verse 41, they hear the most terrifying words that could ever be heard by human ears. Verse 41, Jesus will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. With these words, the wicked, the goats, they will enter into eternal, never-fading sorrow and punishment away from the presence of Jesus. Notice the language here. Jesus says, depart from me, get away from me. Notice that Jesus calls them cursed. Notice the twofold aspect of the punishment. They are removed from everything that is good, away from the presence of Jesus. And then they're actively punished for their sins. Away from Jesus, into the fire, Jesus says. Cursed. This is the just punishment for sin against a holy God. This is what the Bible means when it says the wages of sin is death. This is what we are owed if God were to give us what we deserve for our sins. This is a just punishment. The story of hell will be the saddest story ever told. In this moment, Common grace will be removed. And let me explain that for a moment. Not every person in this world receives saving grace from God. Not every person is saved by grace. Not every person in this world even gets to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings salvation. But every person in this world has received common grace from God. You say, what do you mean? God has given you good things. God gives you good gifts every single day. And Jesus taught us this, that the Father is kind to all. He causes His Son to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, on the saved and the unsaved. So think about it. Think about it. How many times in your life have you tasted of the good things of this world? I thought about it this week. The weather cools down. We get, you know, approach that fall weather and that sunshine outside with that perfect temperature. How many times in your life have you gotten to taste little glimpses of the good gifts of God like that? And all the joys that God has allowed you to experience in this life, the joy of being a parent and holding a little baby, Especially before they get old enough to start smelling and they smell amazing and you get to hold them. And that's a good gift of God. Or God gives you the good gift of family. Or flavorful food. We talked about it before. Biscuits and gravy. You get flavors. God gives you uh, good gifts. The riches of creation. And it's not all good. 
You suffer in this life, but in the midst of your suffering, God is, there's a witness to God's kindness to you. In this moment, common grace is forever removed. No more kindness from God. No more of His good gifts that you have tasted throughout your life. Jesus says you will be cursed in that day. Without any mercy, the removal of everything good. The story of hell will be the saddest story ever told. If the song of heaven is worthy as the lamb who was slain, then the song of hell is in Jeremiah 8. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And friend, think about how tormenting it will be to remember Every single time you heard the gospel and rejected it. Think about how long you will have to mull over that foolish, ridiculous decision. Eternity. Eternity. Every time you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you ignored it, ignoring your way straight to hell. And the saddest part is that you will have all eternity to contemplate what could have been and what should have been. And nothing will seem fitting for you in that moment than to sing the song again. The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. And even after you express those words, it still won't go away. The despair is still there. So you sing it again. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. I want to share with you a judgment poem to give you a sense of what hangs upon this day of final judgment. Judgment day is coming and it's nearer than you think. Jesus will be seen as the undisputed king. Every soul that's ever lived shall be called into his court and all will be judged strictly according to their works. Fiery wrath will surely glow in the Savior's eyes as justice is poured out with never-ending reprise. On that last day, oh, how the lost will groan as Jesus takes his seat Upon the judgment throne. Depart from me to the wicked, he will say. You cursed of God from my presence, be forever cast away. At which the wicked cry, but I did this and I did that in your name. But the king will say, I never knew you. To their eternal shame. All their life long they ignored the spirit's plea. But in the end there will be nowhere for them to flee. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, they will cry, but to no avail, the second death, they must surely die. On that last day, oh, how the loss will groan as Jesus takes his seat upon the judgment throne. Friend, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, 
I want to say this as sincerely as I can. It's time to be saved. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You do not have to hear words of judgment on the final day. Why? Because Jesus has come. Christ has come into the world. Why? To save sinners. That's why he came. To save sinners just like you. And I want you to know the only way to get right with God, the only way to do it, is to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. You can try to scrub yourself clean for a hundred thousand years and the stains are deeper than you could ever rid yourself from. You need to be saved by Christ. You need to be saved by Christ. You have no chance to save yourself. And so I want to exhort you this morning to open your eyes and see Jesus has done everything necessary for you to hear the words of blessing on that day. There's nothing left for you to do. He's done everything necessary for you to hear. Come, you blessed of my Father. This is why Jesus came. To come into the world to save sinners. This is why His name is Jesus. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He came to live the life that you failed to live. He perfectly obeyed the same law that you have broken millions of times in your life. And on the cross, he died as the sacrifice to God for sin. Our substitutionary sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came to open the doors of the kingdom to sinners so that we could hear, Come, you blessed of the Father. Enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so I want to plead with you today, stop being a fool. Don't have another opportunity to receive the gospel, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and squander it again. There will never be anything that you regret more than walking away from the gospel. Stop being a fool and do what instead? Sincerely put your trust in Jesus Christ. Bow before Him in submission as your God and your King. That's who Jesus is. He's God and King. And He has all of me. Every ounce of me. Bow before Him. And on that final day, He promises He will never cast you out. There's no, there's no chance that you come to Christ with faith and on that day he says, you know what, I changed my mind. He says, if you come to him, he will never cast you out. John chapter 6, verse 37. Now I want to deal with one difficulty in this text as we wrap up this morning. And I want you to notice that as a confirmation of the fittingness of both verdicts, the verdict of heaven and the verdict of hell, Jesus appeals to works of love. Whether they've been done or left undone, the sheep did the works of love. 
and the goats left the works of love undone. And specifically, Jesus has in view here the acts of mercy that are either done or undone towards other Christians. Okay, It's a narrower focus than just general good. And the reason we know that is because Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, you do to me. Okay, These are acts of love to the body of Christ. Now why could Jesus ever say that? That what you do to other Christians is what you do to me. Well, this is not the only place that this doctrine is taught in the Bible. The solidarity of Christ and his church. Okay? Jesus is the head and the church is his body. We are one with Jesus Christ. And so, love shown to his body... Love shown to other Christians is counted as love shown to Christ himself. And the opposite of that is also true. Love withheld from his brothers, other Christians, is counted as love withheld from Christ himself. Now that's a lesson the Apostle Paul learned very well when he was on his way to persecute the church in Acts chapter 9. The Lord Jesus appears to him and Jesus indicts him with with this question. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. And if you're Paul, you might scratch your head. Wait a second, Jesus. I'm persecuting your people. But Jesus says, no, you're persecuting me. What you do to my body is counted as doing it to me. And so Jesus has in view here the works of love done towards the body of Christ, the church. Now the question that we have to deal with is, is Jesus teaching that we enter the kingdom by doing works of love to other Christians? And if we do works of love, we'll enter the kingdom. Because Jesus says, you know, uh, uh, to the sheep, you, you know, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you visited me while I was sick, and they entered the kingdom. Therefore, we go to heaven because we do works of love in this world. Is Jesus teaching that? No, he's not. Jesus is not teaching that. That's works-based salvation. What does the passage say? It says that those who receive the kingdom are blessed. They're blessed. They get something they don't deserve. And what, is it, what does it say? The reward is graciously prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Not earned by us. The kingdom has been prepared for us. Not earned by us. Prepared from the, from the foundation of the world. And so it's very important that you understand that heaven is never a wage paid It's a gracious gift that is given. It's never a wage paid, but a gracious gift that is given. In other words, we receive infinitely more, the kingdom, eternal life, than we could ever be said to earn with our good works. Our works are tainted with sin, and they're imperfect. The best of us in this room, we can't earn heaven. And so the good works of Christians 
cannot ever be the grounds upon which we enter the kingdom and enter eternal life. The only ground on which we can ever enter the kingdom is the grounds of the works of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, not our imperfect obedience, but His perfect obedience in our place. This is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church gets wrong and it's exactly where they pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we enter into heaven partly on the basis of our meritorious works before God. That is blasphemy. The song of heaven is worthy is the lamb who was slain. So Jesus is not teaching work salvation but what is he teaching? What is he teaching in this passage? Why the appeal to these works? Jesus is teaching instead that good works, especially works of love to other Christians, are evidence of real faith in Jesus Christ. They're evidence that this person is really converted. They're really a Christian. They really have faith in Christ. They really have a new heart. Look at the fruit of that profession, this, these works of love for the body of Christ. Now, if you read your Bibles long enough, that won't surprise you at all. That part of the confirmation and part of the evidence of true conversion is love for the people of God. This is exactly what the Apostle John says in his letter, 1 John. And he says it over and over and over again. He refers to what we've called the love test in that letter. And I'll read just a few of these. Love test as evidence of true conversion. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God... And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not, not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says it again, 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's one of the marks that you've received the real thing, not the counterfeit version of a Christian, but the real version of a new creation in Jesus Christ, that you love the people that belong to Jesus. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who loves Jesus and hates the church. It's like telling Jesus, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your bride. I would not recommend that on the final day. There's no such thing as a real Christian who loves Jesus and hates the church. In other words, this is one of the ways that the Bible gives us, one of the criteria that the Bible gives us to discern true and false professions of faith in Christ is to discern your love for the church. Your love for the church. It's the same thing that James deals with. In James chapter 2, he talks about a brother who's in need and one who has only faith that comes. And instead of meeting that need, he says, be warmed and be filled. And James tells us that kind of faith that doesn't have works is dead faith. It's not real faith. It's not saving faith in Jesus. Saving faith in Jesus produces works of love towards the body of Christ. And listen, there are so many people, Ryan prayed for this 
in our prayer just moments ago, there are so many people who think they are Christians simply because they hear some truth claims about Jesus and they mentally agree with them. Yeah, I think Jesus probably is the Son of God. Therefore, I'm a Christian. But that's not saving faith. Mere mental agreement with facts is not the same thing as trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And this is one of the criteria that we have to evaluate that superficial faith from real saving faith in Jesus. Do you really trust him? Do you really trust him? If you do, you will love Jesus and you will serve Jesus. And if you love Jesus and serve Jesus, you will love Jesus' church and you will serve Jesus' church. And how in the world could you possibly say that, you, man, I love the body of Christ. Think about the emphasis here. The emphasis is not, man, I have happy feelings towards the church. These are deeds of love. A life of service towards the people of God. How in the world can you say that you love the church if you don't even go to church? How in the world could you say that you love the church if you're not even a member of the church? You see what Jesus is doing here. He's clarifying this for us. The real Christian life is not this me and Jesus off in a corner. The real Christian life is lived out in the context of the church, the people of God, where we lay down our lives for Christ and we lay down our lives for those who belong to Christ. We'll close with this verse, 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come to you now. Lord, you are our fountain, and you are the source of everything that is good in this world and in our life. And Lord, we pray today that you would cause your word to bear fruit in your church and in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would send out that word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, I pray that you would cancel anything spoken today that was in error, that wasn't true. And Lord, everything that was spoken today that was true, Lord, I pray that you would cause it to dwell in our hearts richly and deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.